You're listening to United Q Podcast. We're brought to you by ProQ, Kamado Joe, Thermopen, and Smokewood Shack. ProQ's extensive range of bullet smokers, reverse flow, and gravity-fed smokers will suit all, from the home enthusiast to the big volume caterer. Kamado Joe, the king of ceramics, is renowned for build quality and innovation. When smoking, roasting, or searing, get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Thermapen Instant Read Thermometers. Take the guesswork out of barbecuing with the super fast Thermapen. Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time. They provide the smoky goodness, you provide the talent. This week's show, we have Neil from Neverton Foundry. Hi, Neil. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Ben. We're um we're excited to we're excited to have you uh, on the show. We've we've had lots of great great um let's say great photos that we've seen of your products from quite a few of our listeners already on the show, and quite a few of our actual guests on the show have mentioned your products before. So we've had like um. Ian from ProQs talked about your products and Christian, oh, uh, aka great. DJ Barbecue, he's always raving about how amazing your products are. Oh, We've he's just great. Been... He's great. He, he uses our kit all the time. And in fact, actually, I think he's still got some of mine from uh, one of the shows we were at in um, the Ludlow Food Festival. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he, he nicked said, him, is he? I need a big pan. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get it back off him. No worries. But no, no, Christian's cracking. He, he knows his stuff. Right, we'll Christian. tag him in the podcast so he yeah. uh, so he hears it. As <laughs> <laughs> a reminder, Christian, That's give great. it back. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Ludlow's a good one. I've I haven't been to Ludlow before, but I love following it on the social media, and I want to really try and get there next year. You've got to get there next year. It's the twenty fifth anniversary next year, so it's everyone reckons it's got to be the oldest serious food festival in Britain. Okay, yeah. and it, 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 it's an amazing event. It's held inside a castle. Um, it's local to us. I mean, don't, it, I mean it, it's only 20 kilometers from us. Um, and it's actually run, the, the festival itself is actually organized by our second ever stockist. There's a, a shop called Rickards, and it, it's one of those perfect housewares, DIY shops that will sell you six screws, a fork handle, It'll sell you an Arga and, of course, Netherton Pans. And the guy who runs this is the guy who organises the food festival. And it's an amazing event. Um, I mean, we love it. Uh, next year's, so 
well, it will be it'll be next September 2019 will be the yeah. 25th anniversary. And it's got all those amazing cooking outdoor bits. I mean, the fire pit now is very much part of the is really part of a part of the festival. I mean, this yeah, year, uh, yeah, this James year. Freer was there this year and Mark Parr, who was on the podcast, Lord, Lord Logs guys, uh, he was, was there. He there? Oh, yeah. Right. And, right. Uh, we know Mark. Who else was there? Andy. Andy. Andy Stubbs was there this year, I think, doing a demo as well. Who's uh, Andy Low and Slow? He's he's a good friend of the podcast, so we definitely need to get there. Excellent. Well, in fact, um, Sam and Shona, I think, also passed. Um, oh, I could. Yeah, and they 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 they're good friends of ours and great users of our kit. In fact, did you have you been watching them on TV and the, the Hang Fire Girls? on TV um, the last week or two. Yeah, it's a great show, isn't it? Um, it's yeah. so cool to see such an awesome programme going down. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. I don't know, can you get it out there, Dan? Uh, well, uh, I'm not meant to be able to, but I can access it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it says I'm not in the right region, but I can soon fix that. So, yeah, I, I do get to uh, to catch up on them. Actually, I was meant to go on because I think Sean has just posted that all of them are now on the... Uh, on the uh, on catch up, so I can watch them all. Yeah, now. it's on our, it's it's on iPlayer. In fact, actually, on our website, on on the on the Netherton Foundry website, you'll see it in our news where we flag people to where you can find it. Oh, cool, awesome. Yeah, well, I'll definitely do that then. Yeah. All right. So after we dive straight in there, let's take it. Let's take it back a level and just tell us a little bit about Neverton Foundry and like how it began. Well. I'm standing talking to you in our workshops in South Shropshire. So South Shropshire, if, you, if, if you're not sure where that is, if you can, if you can imagine we are about 40, 40 kilometres west of Birmingham. If I kind of stood on the table here, looked over the hills, I can just looking into mid Wales. If I look the other way out, we're, we are a few hundred metres from the River Severn. We're above the River Severn. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of significant, really, because... The River Severn, part of me, sort of big natural divide in the country, was also historically a great transport link. And just up the road from us is Ironbridge. And Ironbridge is, for many people, is really the, the where the Industrial Revolution started. That's where. And it, it's, it's not by chance, because underneath here, where I'm standing now, there's iron ore, there's coal, there's limestone nearby, lots of wood. We're surrounded by wood, uh, wood, so we had all the things that you needed in the 18th century to make a shed load of iron. Um, and in fact, actually, our our works, Netherton Works, are actually on the on the on on the site of an old coal mine. Okay. And in fact, yeah, and in fact, the the coal was initially taken up the river by 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 barge, and later on by railway, which is the Seven Valley Railway, which is now a tourist steam line. Uh, which heads up and down, heads up and down beside the river, and so that part of Ironbridge, okay, is is really sort of is a marker in the ground. That's when Abraham Darby basically discovered a process for making iron in large quantities. Okay, up until that point, really, iron was you can make small amounts of iron at a time, which might be great for making swords and small amounts, but if you wanted to start mm. making bigger items out of iron, it was very difficult to do. He came up with a process that basically allowed you to produce iron in larger quantities. And from that, he, of course, wanted to promote and advertise how great his iron was. 
and its way of perhaps you put doing this was to build a whacking big bridge out of iron and most people regard that <laughs> as the world's first iron bridge it was basically an advert and the really amazing thing about it and it's now a world heritage site but the world amazing thing about it is it's essentially built without bolt nuts and bolts it's built as if it's a wooden bridge it's got tapers and it's got fits and joints um which of course makes it a bit of hard work looking after it these days because <laughs> it's been there for quite a while but it's there and that's and that's our logo our logo that there is a rumor that the that like all good ideas there was a prototype built first and this prototype was put up on the site of the coal mine where we are so that's why we use it as a logo because we've got a direct link to it anyway so we really we take reference to Iron Bridge, Colbrookdale, the, the Valley, Abraham Darby. A couple hundred years ago, they started making a cookware, cookware. And in fact, actually, one of the major products that they were producing that Abraham Darby actually produced was big iron cookpots. And of course, that's, you know, haven't been doing that for a while, but we yeah. brought that back. And we've been producing on this site, we've been producing iron cookware for in low volumes for about 20 years and high volume with the Netherton brand for about 10 years now. Um, starting with big iron casseroles, which goes on electric slow cookers. I mean, you know of us as producing ironware for iron cookware for outdoors, but we actually make a, a cast iron electric slow cooker, uh, which probably yeah. makes us about the only people in Europe making electric slow cookers. We make yeah, hundreds a year, not thousands but they're a bit of a specialist item but we produced that and then from that we then started producing ranges of iron pans and when i talk about iron pans that's principally our core products are spun iron pans uh years ago we used to make cast iron frying pans and there's a lot to be said for a cast iron frying pan but one of the things you're going to say about them is they're very heavy and um, we found that really quite limiting but you could make a small pan like an 18 inch pan maybe even a 10 inch pan but once you got beyond that for a lot of people they were just too heavy to cope yeah, with. yeah so we went back and looked about what do people used to do and we went to a process which we were familiar with for prototyping which is spinning and so we spin our iron bodies so we're taking black sheets of black iron which is a kind of low carbon iron material when we get it, it's very soft, very malleable. And we take a discs of this, which we cut discs of these, and we clamp them up onto a machine that looks a bit like a lathe. A very, I mean, our principal lathe for doing this was built in Birmingham in the 1930s. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you, you don't want to move these things around, I can tell you. It takes a crane to lift it, it's so heavy. All right, so it... And the, and it's got the kind of electric motor that you can smell, you know, when you can smell electricity, you know, that sort of old stuff. <laughs> you know, like you Very get on, on trams and trains. Oh, it is safe, yes, yeah. it's safe, but, it, but it, it's, it's got real heritage. Yeah. Anyway, we, so we're spinning the bodies. And so basically these discs of iron are spinning around and then by hand, we form them round a, sh a shape, okay, that, which is uh, a hardened steel replica of the inside of a pan. Okay, and so that takes a couple of minutes to do that. And then we'll take that, trim it off and get the edges nice and clean. And then we'll punch holes in it, put handles on it. And that's very important to us because we use solid iron rivets. 
and this is a bit like essentially shipbuilding rivets for actually holding the pans on. So in 10 years of doing this, we've never once had a handle come off. <laughs> and, and this is sort of significant, particularly when you start taking those pans outdoors and start putting them onto high temperatures. Mm. I'm notoriously bad at breaking handles off things. So uh... oh, yeah, people do, people do. You know, we, we're aware of that. And so when we came along to do this, we actually were going to make sure that our, our pan handles were going to be attached. Um, you know, and it, it's one of those things that we, we, which we're known for. So we've got a pretty heavy duty handle attached to that. And depending on when you've got it, our sort of signature pan has got oak handles on. Yeah. Uh, and those oak handles, um, it's a great heat resistant thing. So they look great and they've got a good character for them. Um, if you're the sort of person who wants to go and cook literally over the fire, you may prefer a pan without oak handles for obvious reasons because you're setting light to them. But um, and, and and for people who put their pans a lot on the oven, but for everyday use and people yeah. like like the oak handles and that's our core product and if you say what do we make more of than anything else it's sort of 10 and 12 inch frying pans with oak handles and those iron those spun iron frying pans will end up on anything from an induction hob in somebody's gleaming apartment you know or that exactly that same pan will be being dragged through the woods and be Put onto put onto a barbecue, straight onto a burning logs. <laughs> the same pan will do both. Very versatile, then. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird thing actually, but it's often people are surprised to discover that our spun iron pans work beautifully on induction. We didn't intend it that way. It's just the nature of oh. very pure iron happens to work much better than things like stainless steel on induction. But we, you know, that, that's that's just a weird characteristic of it. So there isn't really a kind of heat source it doesn't work on. Um, and uh, maybe it's a, an important thing of how we got into this, of why our pans are like they are, it's, is because they're seasoned iron. But it really by a lot, a, a, a lot of iron pans, you have to go and season it yourself or it's got a bit of a coating. But ours are actually, we, we do something kind of special about that. We actually pre-season them with um, organic flax oil. Uh, and that's very important to us. We're really not very keen on those kind of PTFE non-stick coatings. Principally, we're, as a business, we're quite unsure about how good they are for you. So okay. we'd prefer to avoid those. So we're very, and so you, you can almost see the link here. Everything that we're using on our pan is very simple and generally very pure so we're using iron very simple no alloys very simple and that counts for the handles the bodies and the rivets it's got oak on it natural material you know from sustainable sources and the pan is coated with organic flax oil so if you're concerned about food and you're very keen that you've got the very best ingredients we think you should be taking equal care of considering what you're cooking your food on definitely so that's where you you can see so we're a bit hippie and a bit geeky when it comes to that sort of thing but we're very keen on the pureness of our materials and knowing where they come from yeah well a lot of our listeners even go down to fuel as well and, and are very concerned where their fuel comes from so so i'm sure that that this sort of thing would be 
completely oh, right. Oh, yes. Well, that's why you, you mentioned Mark and Lord Logs. You know, Lord Logs. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they are absolute experts on this sort of aspect. I mean, they were here a couple of days ago, actually. Um, and I was amazed to actually hear the trouble that they go to to find exactly the right material to to cook on and i really understand that because we go to the same trouble when we're looking at you know sourcing our materials yeah um, can yeah. i ask you what, what what is the it's gonna sound like a stupid question but for for anyone who doesn't know what, what is the main difference in like properties to between a cast iron pan and a spun iron pan oh that's very straightforward in terms of the iron content they're pretty similar all right the difference okay. so in terms of the thermal properties between cast iron and spun iron actually barely measurable the black iron is got <laughs> slightly less thermal conductivity before spinning and slightly more after it's been spun because as it gets spun it gets wrought you know like as in wrought okay. iron that yeah, yeah. process so when we're making the edges so we would argue that it's marginally better thermally than cast iron but i have to be in truth it's so marginal you'd never notice the difference the most significant thing is the, is the weight because when we're casting things, we, we you know we we cast casserole dishes and uh, things like cooking irons and so on. We can't cast less than about four millimeters, four, four you know maybe a bit more than that, quarter of an inch. Yeah. Um, and that's simply because when you're heating it, it just won't run through the gaps in the mold. Just it won't, it won't fill the mold. Um, from our purposes, no, not consistently anyway. But when we're spinning it, we've got much more choice. We can spin the thickness for what we need. So, sort of a typical everyday frying pan, like a 10 or 12, two millimeters is a great thickness. That'll make a pan that you can lift, you know, you can actually use because it's not only the weight yeah. of the pan, it's you've got the food in it. So, you've got a very big pan, you've got not only that, you've got the weight of the food. Uh, but so that would be typically about two millimeters. Uh, let's say you've got something like where you want to heat it up even faster, but not maintain the heat like a wok. We'll go down to as thin as one millimeter. I, mean, I think it's technically 1.1 millimeter that we're using. But something like that will be, you know, when you're wanting to flash fry something very, very fast or stir fry, take it off the heat and it cools down very fast. So you'll take the mass out of it by making it thinner. So spinning gives us that option. The problem with casting is ultimately you, you know, up, you, when it comes to pans, you get one thickness. It's four millimeters or not, you know, yeah. or heavier, or heavier. <laughs> Funny enough, if you if you go along and see your kind of your, your discount supermarket, you're selling cast iron cookware, you'll actually find that what appears to be oh that's a bit heavy duty one is actually a bit thicker maybe as thick as six millimeters and that's not because they're kind giving you more metal it's because they can't cast it thinner um so the you know the 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 best foundries out there are probably going down to about four millimeters um mm. and to say that makes a great casserole so when we're making casserole dishes that's exactly the right thing you know, if you want to slow cook in a big vessel that's perfect but if you're frying or griddling, you you, you need some. We we ourselves think you need something a bit thinner, but it's going to be easier to handle, but has the right thermal properties. Yeah, so, so well, that's it, the difference well, yeah. between cast and spun. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's interesting. 
We're learning something today. Hope you made some notes, Dan. <laughs> uh, I'm actually am. <laughs> yeah. And look, the handles as well. They're they're, they're almost a little pe- work of art on their own as well. The little wooden handles. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it. It was a game. You know, you mentioned about the thing about keeping handles on. Um, mm. This, uh, of course, the oak part is a handle cover because right underneath there is a. Is, is a whacking piece of black iron right the way through the middle of it so that it stays with it. There's nothing more annoying than having a wooden handle that actually essentially falls off because it's burnt off. And, and I've certainly had pans like that, yeah, you know, so definitely. it becomes a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So it's a, so that, that cover is very important to us. Um, you know, and that pretty well goes on every product which we produce in one version or another, you know, you'll see that. And, um, it's got our logo branded onto it, and that is burnt on. Um, and I've got to be honest about everyone is different, um, depending on the day of the week and the pressure we put. But also, of course, the oak itself. And we, we, we're basically using British oak. Um, and the thing about British oak is it's a relatively um, variable product in terms of its density. You know, so um, it, it, it has a lot of character. Um, and very occasionally, I get people who sort of say. They're all different. You know, why don't you make them all the same as well? The oak's different. You know, it depends where it came on the tree um, and uh, yeah. how old it is, which part of the tree. Um, I mean, some of our oak actually comes from very close to us, actually. Um, and it's a guy who's, uh, he, he manages quite a bit of woodland, but he's got a bit of his own and he'll pull, he'll, t- he'll cut down probably not more than one tree a year and a lot of that goes for church restoration things making pews um and we often get on our handles are very small the um the smaller branches and the smaller bits and pieces and that makes great handles very good a lot of character in them lots of color and i personally i like that um but um those the handles themselves we brand with you know the logos burnt into it uh, and then we finish it off with a natural wax oil. So they've got a waxy surface on that, but um, really just kind of keeps them easy to easy to wipe down and keeps the water out of the out of the oak. Yes, yeah, great. And I, I like I like that kind of look of them all being a bit different. I think that it's it's something you either like or you don't like. But I think it's definitely a a feature that attracts me to the product is that fact that they do feel handmade and that they're all unique and that everyone's they got sort of also get, yeah they get better that the more you've had them they they, they, they develop character i mean the oak as a, as a wood is you know the older it gets the better it looks doesn't it you know it's all ages and browns and we all like old oak and so it, it's a bit of an incentive to keep the product in our in my view i mean we we know there are certain chefs who who use professional chefs who use who use our kit and they'll have a set of netherton pans that they keep to themselves and sort of fight people off who want to use them because it's their <laughs> pans and they've kept them for years and years and they've seasoned them just how they like it and it's got their feel about it you know so the handles molded you know the handles are molded to the shape of their fingers you know <laughs> um and they become quite personal um and, and we like that uh and um one of the kind of common questions that people ask actually to say to you is is um if I buy one now, will it be a different range next year, or will you change the colour? Uh, well, no, you know we don't. You know, if oak's not going to change colour, you know, 
<laughs> you know, the pans up. You know, we're, we're very much in that continuity. So that if you've got an eight-inch pan now or a ten-inch pan now, and five years later you want to buy a fourteen-inch, it'll still be part of the family. It'll just add to it. You know, it's um, so. Uh, yeah, so it's good when you're investing in this range. You you know you're going to be able to carry absolutely. it on forevermore. You also do like uh, a copper range as well, don't you? Yeah, the copper's new very new and that came that really came from the Sheffy world where um uh, it's sort of impossible to buy real copper now there's lots of things out there that look like copper but they're really mostly either aluminium or or stainless steel lined and Mm. so they look nice and shiny and coppery but they don't really perform um and the thing that makes copper really special is that that amazing heat transfer you get um, I mean, there is absolutely nothing like, I mean, iron's brilliant, you know, iron's good, but copper is in a different world when it comes to doing, they sort of more delicate things, sauces and creams and all the, you know, it, copper's not the sort of thing you want to go and griddle a steak on, though, it'd be, you don't need to do it, it'd be a bit pointless. But when you're coming to make a, a sauce or something special, you know, if you're using a butter or cream or something, there is nothing better than copper if it's lined. And because it was very expensive, they, people stopped producing copper with t- proper tin lining. Mm. Um, and it stopped in Britain being done on any kind of volume basis probably 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. And it carried on in France and in Belgium until possibly about 10 years ago. And there are a few famous brands who normally still make proper copper pans and when i mean a proper copper pan is solid copper with a thin um pure tin lining on the inside of it okay i'll come back to that in a minute but uh, so that's what a proper a proper copper pan is um and really they've just haven't been available for probably 20 years And so what's been happening is people have been scouring the flea markets of Europe, picking up any copper pans they can and getting them restored. And that works pretty well. That's a good thing to do, you know, because a good copper pan, again, is going to be sort of between one and a half and two millimetres thick. And actually, if it's been looked after, once it's been retinned, it'll work pretty well. But the trouble is this, of course, it's a, it's, it's a diminishing stocker. It's getting harder and harder to get hold of these things, and you can never get sets. And so so people in the professional world have come to us and said, can you make me these sizes? And so that's how we got into it. And then from the spinning point of view, it's very nice. It's a lovely spinning spin copper. It's a great material. Um, it's quite harder than you think, actually. I mean, it starts off very soft and gets hot again wrought and gets much harder as you get along and it's phenomenally dense but it's very satisfying to do that and so we're producing those copper copper saucepans um and again using solid copper rivets on which um the whole thing is just mind-blowingly expensive to go and do um <laughs> you know sort of a pound of rivet you know it's, it's crazy yeah. to do. but once we finish these we've got this beautiful pan we then need to get it get it tinned and in truth, we don't do that ourselves because it's a real skill. We only know of two people in Britain who can do this. And thankfully, one of them we've known for a while, um, it's a company called Thomas Gamerson, they're about, well, they'd be about 30 kilometres from us here, uh, just over the border in Staffordshire. 
And that family there have been doing, Thomas Gamerson has been running for 200 years. They just had their 200th birthday during the, um, during the summer. So on the kind of Netherton approach of being a bit cautious about this, we reckon if they've been doing it for 200 years, they've probably just about perfected it now. So there are, <laughs> there, there, there are tinner. Um, and it, uh, tinning is, it's, it's, a, um, it's a real black art. And basically the tin is actually hand wiped onto a clean copper surface. Wow. It's one of those things I could do one or two, but I couldn't do you 10 or 20. Yeah. Um, and then we come back and we, and then we polish the pans up, um, you know, and that's standing in front of a polishing mop for half an hour, mm-hmm. just polishing all the surfaces. Um, and it's very therapeutic, but it's very time consuming. Yeah, <laughs> and that and that's and that's why you end up with a copper pan where, you know, a reasonable size copper pan costs quite a lot of money. But they're a lovely item. They're really, really great. So um, they're not. They're not the sort of thing that are going to be sold by the tens of thousands for sure, but they're a lovely thing to make and um, will carry. It's one of those things, which I think it's quite important to do to make sure these are available. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've, I mean, in fact, only this week I had a, I had a, a chef opening a new restaurant um, close to the secret. I can't say who he is, you see, but he's quite famous. and He's going to be even more famous. And he's opening a new restaurant and he basically wants whole collection of serving cooking and serving to the table in copper pans and in unique size and so well that's my project for next week and i'm sure they'll probably turn up on our website in a month or two's time yeah but they're lovely i was going to say to you how does like you've got such a huge range of products and and like how do you develop new products are they all just people have come to you and we want this or is it you come up with ideas yourself well, the copper pans are a good example where people came to us and said, "I can't get them anywhere else. Will you make them?" Okay, so that that's that 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 that's one sort of approach towards this. Um, we'll sometime, you know, sometimes we'll have people with. Um, we, we work with a a lady called Val Stones, who was a very successful contestant on um, Bake Off a few years ago. Um, the, the British TV program, mm. and she came to us and said, "I can't believe it. Why nobody can make a baking tray that doesn't warp?" And I said, well, it's just a question of making out the right materials, making it thicker. It's like a challenge. Yeah. She's like challenging you. Oh, yeah, I'll <laughs> yeah, take no, that challenge. Was, I'll it, show it, you. It was, a, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. I mean, you know, she, she, she she's very serious about what she does. She knows a hell of a lot about baking. Uh, so we went and made her one, and then we made another one, and. In fact, she she sells them. You know, we sell them in aid of a charity that she supports. And it was just, but the initial idea was she wanted a product that worked, and so that was great and very satisfying to come up with a solution like that. Um, there are other products. I mean, uh, we've got a new product coming out in a few weeks' time, which is a a tripod, a variation upon cooking outdoors on a tripod. Uh, and there's a lot of people doing this where you can hang bowls from things, you know, big. You know, either Dutch ovens or so on, but we we've got a, a, a griddle plate which is a very core part of our range. So it's a quarter inch thick piece of black iron, fifteen inches in diameter, and you can use these griddles for all sorts of things. You know, you can put it on top of your hob and cook yourself a fried egg and a sausage on it. Put it in the oven, bake on it, or put a pizza in it. But we know people love taking them outdoors um, to the point where. Oh, I know, we've been making these for about seven or eight years. People initially were showing me pictures of these 
balanced on rocks and things like that. So eventually with a with a great outdoor chef called Kieran Creevy. I don't know if you know Kieran. Do you know Kieran Creevy? I he's don't, a, Ben. Do you? Uh, the name you rings a bell. You're going to have to look him up. You have to look him up. He's a great friend of ours, and he's a he, he's a personal chef. He goes around the world cooking for all sorts of people, but often in an outdoor environment because not only is he a chef, he's also an international mountain leader. And so he'll go with sponsored athletes of North Face or people like this, and he'll take them up to the Arctic Circle. So they're doing their things, doing photo shoots and all the glamorous part, and he's and he's making sure he's cooking great food, uh, and he takes our kit with him. Um, and it's amazing, but you think he'd be wanting the lightest weight kit you can get, but actually he's a, he's interested in performance, so he takes ours. And so um, a few years ago, he came to me and said, "I need a chapper," and I didn't even know what a chapper was at the time, and he described it as an argent. The, the way that Argentinian cowboys cook steaks and essentially is a griddle plate on legs. Yeah. So we developed a kit with him so that he could bolt the legs onto it, uh, bolt the legs onto an ordinary griddle plate, yeah. cook outside, take them off, put them back into your rucksack, into your bag. That's absolutely brilliant. And that's pretty good fun. Um, so those chappers became part of our everyday life. And then we thought, well, let's see if we can make them even more refined. So we now we've got a tripod system. This 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 is so new. I've made four of these so far. Um, so it'll probably turn up on our website in about five or six weeks when I've productionized it. Isn't that a terrible word? I've made a few more. Yeah. I've got the bit. I've got the bits for around fifty here at the moment. Actually, I'm mostly mostly sitting under my bench. I've got miles and miles of chain at the moment. Um, but what makes ours special is the fact that it, it's a, a, a chapper type plate where you can very accurately raise and lower the height. So you can. We're talking about performance cooking. This isn't just about burning a steak, you know, till it's dead. It's actually about cooking properly. Um, so that's that's coming out shortly, and that came about. And the point about this was this came about from um, a request from uh, my own my my own family. Uh, and we're kind of we like spend a lot of time in the outdoors. When I'm when I'm not being at the Tin Foundry, I'm a rock climber and mountaineer, and so are my kids and my 21 year old son, who's a he's a kind of competition climber. Um, brings all of his mates for his birthday. We're saying there's nowhere I'm going to have all of these guys drinking and killing my house. So we <laughs> had, him in a, had him outside the back of the house. We were putting these tripods up. We made the first prototypes, and they were brilliant. We had, had a, a great party. The tripods were great. And I took these to a food festival called, um, up, up near Chester called the Good Life Experience. Have you heard about the Good Life Experience? I run, I have yes. It's run, it's, it's run by DJ um, Keris Matthews, mm. or Catatonia fan, and BBC Radio Six. Wonderful event, really great fun. I mean, we, we're sort of normally there to be sort of showing our products, but it's actually just good fun. And then yeah. loads of, every, everyone's out there. I mean, literally thousands of people camping and cooking outdoors on wood. Uh, so I took my couple of prototypes and. I think, yeah, I had four, and people found excuses of why they couldn't live without them. So I ended up giving it all away. My so two of them have gone to a film set, 
uh, one of them, one of them's gone to somebody who's, to, who's using it for a book publication. Um, the most interesting one actually was was um, uh, Vivian Richardson. She's the um, I think I could describe her as a Welsh mermaid. She's she's the open water <laughs> swimmer, um, and she she basically has been finding every piece of open water, sort of lake, river large pond even small ponds i think and she's open water swimming in this and and she encourages other people to go with her it's just, it's absolutely great this i mean a bit mad but it's really good anyway <laughs> so she gets she, so they, everyone goes to this and of course you all come out you're cold met so she's then got our my tripod sample up there with her homemade soup bubbling away when she when they come out so uh that's good that's fun i like people <laughs> using product isn't it great when people use your product for a good reason yeah good photos so, as well anyway, <laughs> so 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 tripods are now a big part of my life okay. awesome well i look so, forward to seeing that when you get that added to the website i know i'm now i've got, I've got a wood turn the, the the top of it there's an oak pulley which pulls up on the chain okay so on my lathe here i've got i've, I've got 50 lumps of oak which i'm which is this is a job when when I finish talking to you guys, I'm going, I'm going back in the workshop and I'll start turning those up, you see. <laughs> we'll, okay. We won't keep you too long then. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's all right. <laughs> the first ten are fine, I guess. But... <laughs> Another product that really uh, sort of like, I, I get excited about is, is the, the tagines you've got as well because they're, they're cast up. So, I mean, they're the sort of thing you can maybe yeah, put in the embers or put in the fire and, and cook like a nice uh, like a nice tagine or something like that. So, it's it's... They look oh, fantastic yeah. as well. So, I mean, I'd, I'd really be keen to 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 give one of those you, a go as well. Yeah, you really got to try one of those. Tagine cooking yeah. is great. Well, I mentioned so early on that we make electric slow cookers, and there's a sort of direct link between slow cookers and tagine cooking. It's very similar style. Mm. Um, and um, in Britain, we tend to think of t- slow cooking as a sort of British or American thing. But if you follow the traces back, electric slow cookers turned up in Britain in the sort of 1960s and America in the 1950s, but they stole the idea from Spain and Portugal of the slow cooking approach, and the Spanish and Portuguese stole the idea from North Africa. Okay, isn't this amazing? You can see this trend. And of course, you see lots of ceramic tagines. Of course, we yeah. cast cast that, but they've actually, when the um, when the French decided that they wanted to uh, inverted commas look after Morocco, one of the first things they did was put in an iron foundry in order to make bowls for tagines, and that was in the mm-hmm. latter part of the nineteenth century. So cast iron tagines have been around for a pretty long time, pretty long time. Interesting. Um, I'd never seen that, until I saw your range. I'd never seen. A cast iron version, I think. Uh, yeah, no, no, they, they, they've yeah. been around. I mean, I think that they're. If you go into the sort of souk in Marrakesh, you'll find lots of um, ceramic tagines, and those are principally yeah. made out of um, earthenware. I mean, it's basically kind of flower pot material, and they are almost a kind of. They'll they'll last you for about ten uses, so you know they'll cost you a dollar. And yes. they'll because it's not really a fireable material you know you're using that on embers and it's getting small cracks and crazes and eventually it'll go crack and fall apart okay you know that's that's the nature of nature of them 
Um, and of course, that's why the cast iron ones come around because they'll. Well, it was actually the small. The small ones really only work in quite a small size. I mean, that's where the base is in direct contact with the flames. Um, you couldn't really make successfully a larger one out of earthenware. Okay, and so that's where the cast iron came was a better solution. Mm. And then, of course, the lid on top of that. Well, that can be made out of different materials because that's got an interesting effect on the tagine. It's it's really a sort of like a, a rain cloud collector. Its whole job is to actually allow the steam from the food to go up and touch the lid and then condense on the inside. Okay. So there's there, there's there's often some confusion because... It's strange because um, so my tagine I've got that's a ceramic one's actually got a hole in the top. Well, that's... N- that's weird to us mm. because it shouldn't have a hole in it in our view okay and that is where people put to genes in, t- in things like inside ovens and things and of course proper to gene cooking is heat from a open fire and you 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 really barely you know you you're you're using you're not wanting to add liquid during the cooking so yeah. like to gene cooking is probably around about you know through between 3 and 5 hours you're, it's not got a vast amount of excess water in. You're not trying to boil off anything, so it's, so it's maintaining that that um, moisture within there by that effect of letting the liquid go up, condense, rain back down again. And you don't want it to be venting too much. And in fact, actually, if it's venting a lot, it suggests you're getting too much heat in there because you're wanting that low simmering. You know, it's a slow cooking process. Mm. So I mean we, we, I mean we we make ceramic um, uh, lids for ours, and for actually we now have a copper one with a tin lining, um, which works beautifully as well. You know, it's um, uh, you can do quite as I say the interesting aspect on on a tagine lid is you're wanting to get condensation. Um, it's not, uh, it is maintaining heat within the inside, but it's not a thermal layer. Um, and I say, what we certainly don't believe that it's not really to cooking if you put it inside an oven you're just using yeah. it then as a casserole and, you know a casserole mm. is a great thing but it's a different style of cooking yeah yeah it's interesting mm. i'm like fascinated i think we we're we're running out of time now but we I could talk to you all day about things <laughs> <laughs> which so, means i'm going on a lot that's what no I mean. no no i think like i feel like we've only scratched the surface of like i think I think like we've got to this point in the podcast, and I feel like I've only asked you about two questions, and we're well, <laughs> come back, come back to me and talk to me about something else. Yeah, I think we should. So I think I think like, this is it's been fascinating, and thanks very much, and such an insight into the whole world of of what you're producing out there, and Definitely. you know you're producing it, and you're sending it all over the world. So it's not you're not like you you might be from Little Shropshire, but you're actually uh, packing a big punch. Um. <laughs> well, uh, it's amazing. Well, I, I can honestly say I've got outside walking past the window. If I'm looking inside, I've got two grouse fighting outside uh, <laughs> on one side of it. And on the wall behind me, I've got four or five pallets of woks going to a department store in China. It does feel like a very weird world here sometimes. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> I bet. Awesome. Uh, so, it's great speaking to you guys. And you, and and if you want to check out um, Leverton Foundry at the moment, you're on ITV4 in the on the Made in Britain series, aren't you? We are. Yeah, it was a series of three programmes. We're in the second one with some illustrious com- company. We've got the um, Brompton bike people. These guys who make these lovely mm-hmm. folding bikes in, in in London. 
and Tyrrell's crisps and us. Yeah, um, and the whole series is worth watching because you can go and see how Doc Martins are made and barber jackets. Um, so that you can find that on on um, ITV Hub, which is the version of iPlayer. So yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. I, it's entertaining. I've enjoyed watching it. Yeah, and I'm only on for ten minutes. So actually, <laughs> if you do watch it, you can see the spinning in progress. You can see young Carl pushing away making ten inch pans, and you can see us yeah, using awesome. our our 1930s fly presses. Yeah, because um, I'm into collecting vintage machinery. So our our riveting is actually done by 1920s and 1930s presses, all done by hand. It's amazing. No, I'm definitely gonna check it out, and I think a lot of people are now gonna go on. If you, there's also quite a few videos on your website as well, so I'd recommend people go to neverton-foundry.co.uk, and there's lots of videos about how things are made. Um, also check out the Instagram page at Neverton Foundry, and Twitter. I think you're Neverton News. We're on Twitter. News, we're on you? Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're really into the food part, you'll see there's loads of recipes dotted around there's a recipe pages but there's also a blog and we're constantly putting up new recipes for all sorts of styles of food we're we're not just involved in making the pans we actually cook a lot as well good (laughs) (laughs) that's the important bit and you get to eat as well (laughs) definitely awesome thanks for giving up your time it's been really great to speak to you okay speak to you again sometime cheers thank Thank you you. bye bye You're listening to United Q Podcast. We're brought to you by Pro-Q, Kamado Joe, Thermopen and Smokewood Shack. Pro-Q's extensive range of bullet smokers, reverse flow and gravity-fed smokers will suit all, from the home enthusiast to the big volume caterer. Kamado Joe, the king of ceramics, is renowned for build quality and innovation. From smoking, roasting or searing, get that great barbecue taste and keep the moisture locked in. Thermopen Instant Read Thermometers. Take the guesswork out of barbecuing with the super fast Thermopen. Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time. They provide the smoky goodness, you provide the talent.